Well, all right. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. It's the Here Comes the Pain podcast. I'm your host, Joel Payne. We're presented by Hip Politics Network. Lots of great content there. I would encourage you to check out. Follow the show on Instagram at Here Comes the Pain Pod. That's at Here Comes the Pain P O D. Follow me on Twitter at P A Y N E D C. That's at Pain D C. I am back, and I know I have been away for a bit. Appreciate people checking in on me, making sure I'm all good. Decided to take a little hiatus. Uh, it was a little bit rude and not sharing that with the audience, so sorry about that. Actually, was pretty busy the last couple of weeks. Uh, obviously, we've had a lot of things going on in the political world. We're going to get into some of that here in this episode. But um, my television duties uh, took precedent, unfortunately, for me. I, uh, Of course, I'm a political contributor for CBS News. I did a lot of national coverage for CBS uh, over the Democratic and Republican conventions. And uh, fortunately, that had to take the uh, the first responsibility for me. And so I had to take a little step back from the podcast. But I'm back. I'm refreshed. And I am ready to continue our conversation. Um, Roscoe is here. He is eagerly chewing on a bone. So if you hear something in the background, that might be what it is. But we're back and we're ready to uh, to resume our great conversations that we've been having in the last couple of weeks. We've had some great guests. We've had some good topics to talk about. And I know that there have been some things in the time that I've been away that uh, we've missed. So we might not be able to cover all of it, but we're going to cover some of it. Um, I actually want to start by talking about the conventions. And, you know, I had a lot to say in the coverage that I did for CBS News about this. But I guess I want to just share some thoughts from first the DNC and then the RNC. And then talk about what it means going forward, looking ahead the next 60 or so days to November 3rd, which is, of course, Election Day. Although this year, and I cannot stress this enough, Election Day is going to feel more like Election Week or Election Month or even Election Season. It is very likely we will not know who won the president's race or even a number of high profile Senate races and House races on Election Day or on Election Day evening is a very good possibility that we're going to be waiting a few days to find that out. Um, so I, I think that that's something we should all be getting ourselves ready for. But again, let's focus in on the convention here. And a couple things jump out for me. I want to start with the DNC. Um, I thought the DNC deserved a ton of credit. The DNC being, of course, the Democratic National Committee. thought the organizers for the convention deserved a lot of credit. This was a very adverse circumstance, as with the RNC as well. And I'm going to give them, as you can probably imagine, I'm going to have some criticism for them. But I'll give both convention organizers credit for this. This is a big production to adjust on the fly. I don't know if many of you have actually been to these conventions before, but they are big to-dos. There's a reason why people go to a town for a year and camp out and figure out locations and figure out sound and lighting and you know where you can have community events and all the special guests that you want to have in what the color scheme is going to look like what time the balloons are going to drop all that stuff and so to have the curveball of coronavirus which has been thrown at all of us but particularly for these event organizers to have that curveball thrown at them and then to be able to adjust and really again for both conventions i'm not talking about the content i'm talking about just the actual execution to have both of them go off pretty well um is a is a pretty good feat for organizers on both sides so that'll be my bipartisan message for the day dnc and rnc both did a good job but um you know with the dnc 
did a good job of adjusting on the fly. I thought probably the highlight of what the DNC event organizers were able to pull off was the roll call, which is, of course, normally where you would do the formal nomination of the nominee, the, the president and the vice president, of course. Um, the DNC was able to get folks from all over the country, from their different geographic areas, Kansas, Hawaii, Alaska, North Carolina, Florida, uh, Arizona, New Mexico, everywhere, and to get people from their home areas to reflect something about their local values and why they were, uh, you know, throwing their support behind and why they were nominating Joe Biden. I thought it came off really well. Um, so in terms of the production of the event, I thought that that was a real highlight. Um, I know some of the folks who were involved in pulling this off and just give them a lot of credit, give them all the flowers. They did a wonderful job. But I also say, too, the most important part for the DNC, there were there were a lot of speeches and there were a lot of elements of it and guest stars and things of that nature. And there are a lot of things you can kind of point to. I think there were five speeches that needed to perform. OK, it was Barack Obama, Michelle Obama, Kamala Harris, Jill Biden and, of course, Joe Biden. Those five key speakers all knocked it out the park in their own unique ways. Um, I would say that the best performing speech, probably um, just based on expectation to what we actually got, might have been Dr. Jill Biden. Um, I thought, you know, she is somebody who obviously she was the former second lady of the United States when her husband was vice president. Um, she is a very accomplished academic, um, a teacher. And somebody who has obviously she's no stranger to the public spotlight, but on this stage at that level, I think many Americans were probably just learning a lot about Jill Biden and what she's all about. And I think she broke down Joe Biden and, and explained Joe Biden to maybe those who might otherwise have not known a lot about uh, the former vice president. She shared so many personal anecdotes and so many things from their life that would make him relatable to voters to people who were obviously supporters, but also people who are on the fence. And I think she really did the job of making the case. Um, and I thought she was just fantastic. And what she did was she drew a parallel between how Joe Biden was able to really reconstruct his family. It's been very well talked about publicly how when he was a young senator, when he was, I think it was when he first actually was voted to the Senate, I think it was right before he was age 30. I think he was going to turn 30 when he was inaugurated. So it was, it was, he was able to do it. But right before he um, started his first term in the Senate, his young family was involved in an automobile accident. His um, first wife was killed and uh, his daughter was killed. And I believe his sons were injured, or at least one of his sons were injured. But um, regardless, it was just a tragic event. And, you know, of course, years later, he was able to meet Dr. Jill Biden, who, you know, they started their family together. They blended um, their respective families and their respective experiences together. But what Dr. Jill Biden said that I thought was so um, just it will stay with me is Joe Biden was able to put their family back together. And he will be able to do that for the country. And I think that's a powerful message right now. I think you're at a time where so many people are feeling insecure about the country, insecure about the direction of the country. So to be able to use her personal credibility, right, to, to be able to use her experience and, and 
really in a relatable way. She's a very um, capable speaker and gave a very strong um, speech. But again, just making that connection, I think, is so powerful. It's something that Michelle Obama was able to do on several occasions for her husband, uh, former President Barack Obama, obviously, um, when he was in office. And I think Jill Biden certainly was able to reflect that in her remarks. So I thought she performed very well. I didn't think any of the perform uh, the, those top five speakers performed poorly. Um, I might say the second best speech that I heard was Barack Obama, which, uh, listen, I don't want to turn this into, um, you know, kind of a Barack Obama worship session. But look, this is probably the most gifted order in maybe what the last 40, 50 years of American politics. He is the most skilled messenger on the Democratic progressive side of politics right now. He has really taken over that role from Bill Clinton uh, for a number of reasons, um, age, but also um you know, credibility at the moment. And I'll just leave it at that. But I think Barack Obama really was able to transform into the explainer in chief and in a different way than some of his kind of predecessor ex-presidents were able to do. Right. This is a this is a common role at a political convention. You know, a Ronald Reagan going back to a Republican convention after he's out of office or a George W. Bush. Normally, you would think would do that. But we didn't see any Republican ex-presidents at Donald Trump's Republican convention, which we'll talk about shortly. But generally speaking, the history of, of modern presidential conventions, you get that ex-president to come in and to talk one credibly as a national leader, as somebody who understands how to talk to the country and can really synthesize the issues and talk to a wide base of voters. And Barack Obama was able to do that with a skill um, that really I don't think we've ever seen from an ex-president. And I think he also was able to lay out the stakes for this election in very stark terms. You know, there are very specific rules that govern ex-presidents. It's kind of like the unwritten rules in baseball. There are just things you're supposed to say and not supposed to say um, as part of this ex-presidents club. And I think this moment in time with Donald Trump in the White House has really challenged those ex-presidents. Um, I think Former President Bush, um, the surviving former President Bush, uh, George W. Bush, I think former President Carter, um, I think um, Bill Clinton and obviously Barack Obama have all looked the, the what we expect from those former leaders is to not do kind of ad hominem attacks on the current occupant of the White House, because it's kind of a it's called a gentleman's agreement because we've only had male presidents. But really, it is a it is a it is a common agreement to not give the person in the office right now a hard time because you have a unique experience of understanding what they are going through. And it is very disruptive to have a former president do that. I think given the moment we're in and given who the current president is, I think those rules have to shift. And I think Barack Obama was able to really successfully navigate that shift at this moment and really provide a speech that was relevant, um, that had energy, that laid out the stakes, that had a call to action. And I think, you know, probably what it did more than anything was have a lot of uh, Americans, a lot of folks yearning back to a time four or five years ago when he was the president and when you felt, even in times of uncertainty, you felt a lot more calm and certain about uh, who was at the head of the ship. And I think 
beyond all of what I'm saying about the skill and the delivery of the Obama speech, his chief job, obviously, was to lay out why Joe Biden is the best person to lead America forward in this time. And I think he did that. Um, and again, the other speeches were very capable. I thought Joe Biden really um, kind of stepped up to the plate. I'm going to talk a little bit more about Biden and kind of how he has arrived at certain moments throughout this entire campaign cycle. Um, I'm going to talk about that more in a second. One thing I just kind of want to add about the um, the, the DNC and, and, and a theme that I heard with these speakers and you know, political conventions can often turn into laundry list of policy prescriptions. Oh, you know, we want to talk about a woman's right to choose or reproductive rights. We want to talk about um, immigration rights. We want to talk about, you know, criminal justice and all of those things. And I'm, I, I don't I don't bring those up to trivialize those issues. Those are all very important issues. And, you know, progressives, Democrats all believe in them for good reason. But a political convention there are two audiences you're talking to. Normally, you're talking to a big audience of people in the hall, right? And wherever you are, in 2012, it was in Charlotte. In 2016, it was Philadelphia for Democrats. Um, this was supposed to be Milwaukee. But you're talking to people who are assembled there, who are usually kind of grass tops leaders in the party, right? They are lead activists. They are delegates. They are governors. They are elected, um, you know, office holders, um, right? These are kind of the leading voices in the party, both locally, you know, regionally and nationally. Normally, you're talking to those folks in the hall, but then you're also trying to talk to a wider audience nationally. Now, the unintended, I guess, benefit of the situation this year is that you really didn't have people in the hall to talk to. So, you know, a Joe Biden, for instance, didn't have to kind of do the um, laundry list you know, progressive checklist politics thing that you normally would have to do. I think he was able to skip over that. And I actually think um, he was able to focus on talking to a wider swath of America that might not care about the same issues that me as a lifelong Democrat and someone who's worked for, you know, five elected Democratic office holders, right? Like, I'm going to care about things in a different way than, say, your kind of common middle-of-the-road voter who, like, occasionally votes for Democrats, occasionally votes for Republicans, might split the ticket, might kind of consider themselves an independent. It's a different conversation you're having. Um, I think Biden was afforded the opportunity to speak directly to those folks. I think he did it. I think they were smart to keep his, his speech pretty short. He spoke for, I believe it was about 25 minutes, which anyone who knows Joe Biden knows that that is um, short. And I think that's good because I think brevity is very, 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 very important when you are trying to kind of land a message. And I think it was the right calibration. And, I, and to be candid with you, I can see the hand of all of the smart people um, that have joined Team Biden. I can and, and how they have managed him in kind of recent months and managed the entire campaign apparatus. I can see the hand of that um, very, very clearly. So um, I did want to say that. But again, the speech was shorter, was able to talk to a wider spectrum of Americans. And I think it was really effective. And finally, you're able to talk values. Right. This is not who we are. We don't believe in, you know, all the things that we see this president doing because of his lack of leadership. He, you know, has kind of put America at risk and he has, you know, created these fissures within the country that we're all living through right now. Joe Biden was able to craft a speech that really skillfully said, 
I'm a decent man, I am competent, and I can do what it takes to unify the country. That is it. And in a moment like this, in an election like this, facing an opponent like he's facing, I actually think that's kind of what he needed to do. So I think kudos to the Biden team and to the former vice president for delivering on that speech. I want to pivot a little bit, still talking about former vice president Biden, but really just talking about what I call like meeting the moment. And I'll address it in this way. You know, every president or presidential campaign, right? Leading presidential campaign, you're going to be confronted with these moments that are brought to you that don't necessarily, you know, they're not necessarily on a campaign calendar planner. So you have those, but then you also have like the schedule moments. I think Biden has done a good job at every moment meeting the situation, whether it was an unplanned thing like the shooting of George Floyd, the killing of George Floyd, the shooting of Jacob Blake, um, you know, the unrest in the streets that followed and ensued. Um, Some of the other kind of issues that we've been dealing with. There's another, you know, there's a hot news story now with, uh, you know, from the Atlantic, from Jeffrey Goldberg of the Atlantic, who's the um, editor in chief there, who has um, written a story with multiple anonymous sources talking about uh, President Trump saying these awful things about, um, you know, POWs and people who were killed in action, Um, just really, really disgusting stuff. That's another moment, right? And I imagine that at the time of this taping, we're still kind of seeing how that'll play out. But I imagine Biden will be met with another moment there. And I think what what I really give a lot of credit to Joe Biden for, and people who have watched my commentary and heard my commentary know that Biden was not my first choice in the primary and that I had my doubts about him. But I see the vision and I understand why Democrats in mass landed on Joe Biden as the candidate. He can appeal to a wider group of voters. And in this moment, you kind of just need someone who, you know, can win the election. And I think Democrats arrived at a thesis that we don't need to try anything fancy or new. We just need to pull together that coalition, that Obama coalition um, that we've won, which is a redux of the Clinton coalition. We need to pull that coalition together and really be able to pull over a couple of nervous, sometimes Trumpers, people who are in the middle, who, by the way, if you look at every public polling right now, Joe Biden is leading in. This was the vision of Team Biden throughout. And I give them credit because they did kind of stay true to that. Biden did not really go far out to the left and, you know, go way off brand of of who he has been as a politician. And he's stayed pretty true to himself and to his belief set. And look, there were some tough times in the primary where that didn't seem like it would work. And just to be candid, performatively, it shouldn't have worked, but it did. And it's paying dividends now because now Biden is so difficult for the president to go against because you can't box him in on certain things the way the president likes to do. Um, But just to finish my point here about Biden, you know, Biden really has been able to meet these moments. I've said on a number of occasions, I think Democrats needed roughly five good hours out of Joe Biden this fall. Well, he's already kind of giving you two. And if you go back to, you know, the primary season, you know, you kind of throw another couple of hours on there. 
he gave you a good half hour, 45 minutes or so in the speech that he gave after the South Carolina primary, where there was an after that victory, which was very important, but he needed to stick the landing. And he did that. He gave a good, energetic, just really, you know, stem winder of a speech where he got his supporters excited and laid out the vision for how he was going to pull the party together. And then when it was a one on one debate with Bernie Sanders and people wondered, well, is Biden going to be able to react in that moment? He did. He actually, I would argue, had his best performances in those one on one settings with Bernie Sanders. So he gave you another hour or so right there. And then he gave you another good, you know, we just talked about the 25 minute speech he gave at the DNC. He met the moment. Okay. Now, most recently, he gave this speech in Pittsburgh where he talked about all the protest and the unrest in the streets. People were calling on him to, um, you know, specifically call out violent protesters, looters, rioters, which. Of course, anyone who's been listening understands that that's always where Joe Biden has been. He has been um, very aggressive about calling that out, but people needed him to do it in a speech, which is another funny phenomenon of American politics that we should talk about at another time. But people needed to hear it in a speech. Well, guess what? Biden met the moment. He was able to give the right tone. He found the right words. He made the right argument. He gave a couple good one liners in that speech, too where he said, do I really seem like a radical that like believes in violent protest and rioting? Just calling on kind of that reservoir of goodwill that he's built up with American voters. And I think it was very effective. So again, he met the moment. Just had the Presidential Debate Commission announce be a number of debates this fall. One for Kamala Harris and, and Mike Pence at the VP level. And then two uh, debates between Joe Biden and between Donald Trump, obviously. So that'll be another two, three hours. We need another couple. This, this you know, Biden, unintended benefit of this season being the way it is with coronavirus. And again, no one's happy about coronavirus. But the benefit for Biden is it has somewhat slowed down the cycle. And what you might normally be doing now is in, in a normal election season, I imagine Joe Biden might be spending Labor Day like outside of Detroit in a warehouse with 10,000 people, you know, giving a 40 minute speech or on a normal campaign season, he might be starting the first week of September, you know, out in, you know, a place like uh, Henderson, Nevada, right? Talking to a bunch of hotel workers, but he doesn't have to do that. He's, he's not, the, the moment is not calling on him to do that. The moment's calling on him to have some very, well-manufactured, uh, well-written um, and well-delivered speeches that he's been able to do and to be able to signal the type of leader he will be. I will also say, too, he's been lifted up by a lot of good support from his staff, which I will give credit to now because I will tell you he was not always getting good support from his staff. But I think they have figured out how to support him in the right way, finally, with a really robust um advertising effort both over the air on tv but also digital they have really really figured out the right cadence of how to take his words put it to tape put it to music you know put it to good b-roll and get that out to people and kick it around not just progressives and people who they know are in the bag but to really use it to influence people in the middle they've done a good job of also rolling out 
non-democratic supporters, right? Be it independents or be it, frankly, Republicans, uh, people who feel like the Republican Party has left them. So they have found their, their cadence and they found a good space. That doesn't mean the race is not going to tighten. I would fully expect this race to tighten. But I think the good news for people who vote like me, for Democrats, is that every time Biden has been challenged, he's met the moment. And he's giving you those good 30, 45 minute, one hour blurbs, a performance that you need to have um, for somebody to be able to effectively pull this off. And I think what I am noticing is rising confidence among the Democrats who I talk to who maybe at a certain point did not have confidence that Joe Biden would be able to do this. I think you're hearing a lot more confidence now, quiet confidence Right. Always measure because we're Democrats. So always measure with a little insecurity. But you're hearing quiet confidence that you can feel good about, you know, there being a path for Joe Biden to pull this off. And so um, obviously he's going to be challenged and there's going to be moments where maybe they don't quite respond in the right way. But I think they're doing good stuff right now. And I think the candidate is stepping up at a time where you would expect him to be stepping up. So that's good news for Democrats. Let's go take a gander over at what happened the following week with our friends over in the Republican Party with the Republican National Convention, the RNC. And this, of course, was originally supposed to be in Charlotte, North Carolina, uh, because of some disagreements on coronavirus procedure. You know, the president and his team were trying to be pretty stubborn about having a number of people gathered together, obviously incomplete disagreement with what his own government is acknowledging and is saying in terms of, you know, best practices and in terms of stopping the spread of the coronavirus. But um, it was supposed to move to Jacksonville, Florida, and they decided after some consternation with the local officials who were mostly Republican in Jacksonville that that wasn't going to work out. And so they ended up doing kind of this hybrid event between Charlotte, where they had kind of a ballroom where they had a number of people doing the perfunctory work of the party. And then they had a lot of the speeches and the festivities emanate from Washington, D.C., very infamously right around the corner from the Trump Hotel. So they had it at the Mellon Auditorium for those who don't know D.C. That's kind of right downtown around the corner from the White House. It also happens to be right next door to the Trump DC hotel. So of course, if you're doing business for the RNC, uh, the easiest hotel to get a room and give business to would be the Trump hotel, just the kind of casual graph that we've come to expect from this administration. So that's always fun. But you know, you had four days of events, just like you had with the DNC, you had these speeches in what, and, and again, I want to give credit to the RNC organizers. I actually thought they did a really good job of staging the event. I thought the, um, platform, however, um, you know, again, grafty it might be doing it at a federal building and doing it, it was such a clear advantage to the Trump organization and to the Trump hotel. I think the way they staged it was great. And I think it came across as a good TV product. And I'm sure for people who vote that way, they had to feel pretty good about it. But let's dig into the content at the RNC. So the RNC really and truly normally you know, kind of like we talked about the DNC. Now, look, there's a there's a measure where it's going to focus on the candidate. Right. The DNC was very Joe Biden focused, as it should be. And the RNC was very Donald Trump focused, as it should be. But you also want to give room to like other voices in the party. You want to 
be able to introduce new leaders in the party. You want to be able to talk about the diversity of opinions and experiences. The, the organizers of the RNC set the tone by having like the first official act of the week being that they decided not to put out an official Republican platform this year and that the platform was essentially, you know, hallelujah, amen, Trump. Like, I'm not kidding. They put out a, a document that said the, the platform of the committee was full throated support of the Trump administration, which is uh, pretty, you know, remarkable when you think about it, that the Republicans pretty much just told you they have no ideas other than dear leader. Like it's the dear leader platform, which was a nice way to get started. And I'm sure uh, it probably explained why a lot of uh, Republican office holders who particularly those who are up for reelection were a little scarce at this year's convention. You had like a video from Mitch McConnell, Joni Ernst spoke. Uh, you had a couple of other kind of low, lower level elected officials, but we didn't really see Tom Tillis or Cory Gardner or Susan Collins or any of the other like vulnerable Republicans who have to deal with voters who don't like the person who is the leader of their party. So, you know, you start off the week with the whole platform fiasco, which is just, you know, it's just ridiculous. I mean, look, no one's going to vote on a platform, meaning no one no one in November is going to the polls necessarily thinking about a platform. But it does signal kind of where the party is and what it's all about. Right. So that's that's one. You start with that. Then you have these speeches. And listen, there were capable speakers on the Republican side. And when I say capable, I mean, people who are able to construct a speech and deliver it with some level of charisma and you know, um, conviction in front of a camera and, you know, Nikki Haley, I would say certainly would qualify as one of those people. I think some of the Trump sons actually gave really, you know, persuasive speeches. I think they're nuts and I think they're on another planet, but for what they needed to do, I think they probably, uh, did a, a you know, the, the job that was expected of them. But I want to point out a couple of things. So, we saw a parade of, you know, again, we, we heard from all the Trump children except for Barron. I'm, I'm not saying that to be funny. I'm saying that like literally like we heard from Tiffany, Ivanka, Eric and Don Jr. OK, right. They were all main stage speakers. We heard from staffers like Kellyanne Conway and um, Jerron Smith, who is the brother that they keep pointing out to me is the the black staffer in the Trump administration. Again, no shade. I'm just telling you that whenever they get challenged to bring up a black dude, that was bring up my man, Jerron. I'm sure he's a smart brother and all that, but like, that's the dude they keep bringing up. So they had Jerron in there. All right, cool. Thanks, Jerron. And then they also had Dan Scavino. So you have staffers who are like, I mean, just for kind of comparison's sake, like on the Joe Biden campaign, you know, like General Malley Dillon, who's like one of the superstars of Democratic politics, like she's not giving a speech at a Democratic convention. Or Corinne Jean-Pierre, my friend who was recently added to the Biden campaign and then became the chief of staff for now VP nominee Kamala Harris, right? She's not speaking. She actually could give a damn good speech, about as good as all the other folks that we heard speaking. But like, again... They had staffers who were up there speaking because you couldn't get like these Republican office holders around the country. I think something that they did a good job of was they did find good, you know, personal narrative, personal testimonial type stories. They did some of that well. Um, the widow of the officer who was killed in St. Louis due to unrest and violence. I thought she was very persuasive. 
Um, I thought uh, some of the other kind of speakers, you know, like fishermen and, you know, uh, kind of, uh, you know, blue collar workers, folks like that. I thought they gave some good speeches. I thought some of those were a disaster. They started the week with inviting the couple from St. Louis, the McCloskeys. Now, for a reminder here, for those who may not remember this, these are the folks in St. Louis who are, I think, uh, the, the husband is a, like a lawyer there in St. Louis and is, you know, I'm, I'm not sure what the wife does professionally, um, forgive me, but they, there were protests going on in the St. Louis area and there's a very infamous photo of them holding these, like, long arm shotguns outside of their home like threatening protesters who hadn't posed no threat to their home i mean it's not like these people were like in their front yard like on their property these are just people who are protesting through their community and these folks had guns i don't think it is a coincidence that like less than a week later we had the incident in kenosha where you had kyle rittenhouse a 17 year old who um, I believe was from a neighboring state. I can't recall what neighboring state he was from, but 17 year old cross state borders to, I guess, be a part of some like militiamen, proud boys type movement and go and actually end up killing two protesters there in Kenosha. And Republicans have spent the last you know week and a half trying to construct a defense of this guy. They got pictures of him, you know, like mopping up the walls after a protest somewhere. So it's OK that he shot two people. Jacob Blake is paralyzed and they got damn, you know, every every person that he's like stiff for a dollar um, in his life coming out the woodworks, like justifying that he's shot and paralyzed in the back. Um, so that's today's Republican Party. But anyway, I digress. So you had the McCloskey's who were um, there and they were speaking, you know, emphasizing this message that Trump has been talking about, about the suburbs and how Democrats and, um, you know, Joe Biden want to go and destroy the suburbs, which just FYI, that message does not work. Number one, there's a lot of black people in the suburbs. So I live in the D.C. area. Most of the suburbs around Washington, D.C. are black suburbs. Do, do, does the president understand that? That like there are black people in the suburbs. If you go down to like Atlanta, a lot of those suburbs, those are black suburbs. By the way, if you go to a place like Wisconsin, a lot of places that are classified as suburbs, there are black people there. And a lot of the white folks who are there don't like to think of themselves as racist and bigots. Like, y'all have lost the culture war in this. Um, so I think it's kind of, I mean, it's truly disgusting. But I actually think it's kind of funny to see the president and his team just like flail and miscalculate on this stuff. It's no accident that after the RNC, like they did not get a bump. In fact, they got a bump in the other direction where they were actually tightening the race a bit, there was a bump in the other direction, I think very much in part because the president's message is completely off key on the suburbs. But again, you got the McCloskey's here from uh, the St. Louis area and they're kind of representing like the angry suburbanite. Okay. Then you have this woman um, and I'm going to, I'm going to go and make a point to find her name here. So I'm going to brilliantly stall and look for, um, her, her name, but her, her story was basically, her name is Abby Johnson. Abby Johnson is an anti-abortion rights activist. And she gave a really, I mean, I don't know how else to say this, but just a really disgusting, like anti-abortion speech during the RNC. But like, 
that wasn't even the most offensive thing that came out about Abby Johnson during RNC week. What also came out was that there were comments that she made, and I believe she made these like earlier this year. These weren't like 20 years ago. These are like within the last three or four months where she talked about, and I think she was addressing the George Floyd incident um, and his killing, the police killing of George Floyd. And she, I guess she and her husband or a partner or whomever adopted a biracial child. And Abby Johnson's comment was, well, I think it's reasonable for the police to suspect my biracial child given police statistics. Like, you gotta be pretty sick. You're adopting a biracial child. And then, like, basically defending that child being profiled by police. Like, it's gross. It's laughably gross. Like, it's so gross, I'm laughing. Right? <laughs> like, it's just disgusting. Like, that this woman was one of the people who was speaking at the RNC. You also had Daniel Cameron, who was the Attorney General of Kentucky. Yeah, Kentucky. The same Attorney General who refuses to take any meaningful action to bring to justice the killers of Breonna Taylor, those police officers. You know, remember there's been a story that's come out this week about how the police tried to offer like a plea deal to her boyfriend to suggest that she was a part of some like, you know, uh, organized uh, organized crime syndicate or something, something ridiculous like that. Yeah, that guy who's overseeing that, um, you know, that investigation allegedly, he was one of their speakers. He's got time to do everything in the damn world except do his damn job and arrest the killers of Breonna Taylor. So that was also another Republican speaker. So that jumped out to me. The fact that, and particularly as a black man, right? Like I keep hearing all this talk about how Republicans want to make sure and, and believe, you know, with all their heart that they are going to go after black voters. And I'm just going to tell you, um, I'll just go ahead and say it. It's a podcast. That's bullshit. Okay. They're not going after black voters. They're going after white voters in the suburbs and people in the middle who don't want to think of themselves as racist. None of their efforts are going after black voters. They don't actually want black votes. They want white votes, but they want those white votes to feel like the president is reasonable on the issue of race, which he's not. So that's what they're doing. And it's like the most kind of transparent thing I could see is them claiming that they're like going after black votes, just looking at some of the people that they've got. But that's a little bit of a murderer's row of some of their speakers. So that was awesome. Um, and I was on TV responding to this and talking about this. Um, I actually said on CBS on uh, night three, I believe it was of the RNC or night four, rather the final night, I said it was a shrine to grievance politics. And I absolutely 1000% believe it. It's it, it is. It was them finding fault and complaining about everything in America and claiming that the entire American system is built against them, ignoring the fact that they currently occupy the White House, that they currently have occupied the Senate for going on like five or six years, that uh, up until 18 months ago that they had the House and that they have control of the Supreme Court and they have control of the lower courts. But somehow, some way, someone's trying to take America from them. Pretty, pretty good argument if you can sell it to somebody. So you've got the peace with the speakers and these just kind of, I don't know what the hell the Republicans are doing in terms of trying to appeal to people. 
okay? And then um, when we actually, again, get to some of the content of what these people were saying, and not just those folks who I brought up, but, you know, some of the kind of principal speakers as well, uh, Mike Pence, uh, Ivanka Trump, um, Melania Trump, the first lady, and, of course, Donald Trump. So when you actually, like, read the speeches, and if you were, like, otherwise uninitiated, you'd be like, oh, wow, that's, like, a really reasonable way to look at that. Like, yeah, totally. Like, these people sound reasonable. Yeah, it sounds very reasonable for Melania Trump to talk about, like, people, like, coming together across racial lines and, like, greater understanding, etc. It just kind of ignores the point that, like, Melania Trump's a birther. And that Melania Trump seemingly agrees with her husband on a lot of his very controversial takes. So when on CBS I was asked about this, I said like, yeah, it's a great speech if it's true, but it's not true. It's kind of like me, Joel Payne, like giving a speech talking about how I plan to like run the anchor leg of the 400 in the Olympics um, in 2020 or 2024. Like, sure, that's cool. That's really nice, Joel. But are you actually going to do it? No, of course not. <laughs> I can't run anchor leg in the Olympics. And Republicans and, you know, these kind of Republicans who are trying to appeal to the middle, they have no claim to do that. One, they have no desire to do it. There's nothing in their record that would suggest they do it. And the, the actual record, if you look at what this administration has done, it's laughable how ridiculously off base it is and disconnected it is with the things that you heard at the RNC. I mean, it's just crazy talk. It's just so fascinating to me that um, they were able to construct a universe where like allegedly all of these (laughs) middle of the road, like outreach efforts were happening. We all know the fact to be Donald Trump plans on trying to become the first president really in modern history. I think, you know, modern history, I might not even need that qualifier. I can't think of a president, God, in the last 100, 150 years that has been able to win without appealing to either the middle or bringing on people from the other side. Let's just look at the last 20 years, okay? Barack Obama in 2012, much to the chagrin, by the way, of progressives in the Democratic Party, really took a lot of pains to try to reach out to the middle. Because he knew Mitt Romney was going to be a pretty big challenge in terms of those uh, kind of independent, moderate voters. He actually lost independence to Mitt Romney, but Obama took the effort. He made the effort to go and get those people in the middle. He did things like talking about, the, you know, balancing the federal budget, right, and like reducing the deficit, which, you know, are, are issues that uh, probably did not make him too popular, again, in progressive circles of the Democratic Party. But that's the type of thing you do when you're trying to appeal to like a wider swath of voters. Right. So there's that. There's also, um, you know, naming like a a centrist chief of staff like Bill Bill Daley. These are things that Barack Obama did. Right. George W. Bush. You can go back and look at some of the same stuff that he did reaching out to the middle. Of course, the country was in a very different space then, uh, less than three years after 9-11. But Bush was able to appeal to the middle. In fact, I think he got the highest percentage of Latino votes of Republican has, has had in like the last 50 years. I think George W. Bush got that in 04. Okay. Reagan in the eighties reached out, reached across uh, the middle, started doing things with Tip O'Neill and started kind of coming up with compromised legislation. Right. Again, 
This is what you do when you're trying to appeal to the middle. Bill Clinton in the 90s. What did he start talking about in 95 and 96? He talked about the budget. He talked about prayer in schools. He talked about school uniforms, right? Again, issues that did not make him very popular on the left flank of his party, but are the types of things that you do when you signal, hey, I'm reasonable, I'm willing to work with you, I'm open-minded. None of these things are happening from Trump. And he is trying to pull off a feat that if he does, like, it would be something else to, to win the presidency once and then to get reelected without really doing any kind of outreach and doing it, by the way, in the party that has like a shrinking number of people. Like the Republican Party is like evaporating. It's shrinking. Like it's it's like the coastland on, on the Gulf Coast. It's like the marshlands. Like it's going away. It's like the coast of Florida. Like it's 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 disappearing every single day. <laughs> like. The Republican Party is a shrinking base. And so for him to basically make the bet that like, yeah, I'm just going to double down on like, you know, non-college educated white voters. Like that's the strategy. Um, so just don't tell me otherwise. Don't sit here and try to tell me that Donald Trump is attempting to reach out to, you know, African-Americans or Latinos or women or college educated folks. He's not doing any of that. So, and then finally, let's just go to the president's speech where he spent an hour and 10 minutes um, on a very hot, humid night. He spent it outside the White House, which is a violation of the Hatch Act by any reading of that rule. And I, I was on TV with Reince Priebus, the former chair of the Republican National Committee, and Reince tried to make the point that, like, you know, there are ways you can reimburse the government to make sure all presidents do this, you know, when a president does an event with Air Force One in the backdrop, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, that, that's all nonsense. Um, one, I'd love to see the paper trail on whether or not the Trump campaign or the, the president you know, and his you know, campaign surrogates and allies have made any attempts to make the government whole for any of the expenses that were cost, right? All the things you saw on TV that night, you were footing the bill for, right? The lighting, the security, all the people that had to get tested for coronavirus, all of that stuff, that's all stuff that you paid for. And you paid for it in support of Donald Trump's campaign. So that's what people complained about with the Hatch Act. Now, something that I also said in my commentary was, I don't think that's the best use of time when opposing this president, is to focus on kind of the nicks and cuts like that. Because just frankly, no votes are going to be turned on that. But it's important for... The historical record and so for the historical rec record i mean those are just flagrant violations of um, norms and of actual laws it wasn't just like norms like oh this is how we do things it's like no this is like written into law you know i worked in government for a long time every new job i would take with like a new member of congress or a new senator new house member you have to sit down and do like a couple hour seminar where they talk about all the different things that you know, you need to know as a federal employee and as somebody working in the government that your email doesn't belong to you. Right. And that, you know, you have to, you know, kind of follow all of these different regulations in terms of not violating all these different things when you're doing political activity it has to be reported this way. And you maybe you have to take unpaid leave to do this and that and et cetera. Those things are all in place to prevent what we saw at the White House two weeks ago when you had the president standing outside the White House using it as a backdrop for a political event. 
And in the president's actual words, again, it's just nonsense. I mean, the stuff that he's saying about Joe Biden, I lost track of the just outright lies that he said about Biden. But one thing I did notice was this, and this is bad news for the president and good news for Biden. There is no singular argument that Republicans and the president have come up with to combat Joe Biden. And it's a little bit of what I talked about earlier that the president and his allies are having a hard time boxing in Biden. And this is why they spent the better part of the last two years trying to tear him down. This is what impeachment was all about, right? About them trying to like cook up this story about the Ukraine and election interference and Biden. This is why they went and tried to drag Hunter Biden, um, you know, drag the vice president by talking about Hunter Biden and talking about, um, you know, kind of some of his judgments around these things, right? It's all of it's it's all of that stuff coming to light. This is why Donald Trump spent so much time and so much political capital on all those things is because I think he saw the clear and present threat that Joe Biden was. And I think we're seeing that realized right now. He's a very hard person for Donald Trump to run against. And I think the kind of scattershot speech that you saw from him and the scattered arguments that you saw from all of the Trump allies and sycophants at the RNC, I think proves that. So the RNC was a journey, but I think we got through it. And what's interesting to me is after both conventions, the DNC and the RNC, the race is pretty much status quo. Most public polls have Biden up anywhere from six to 10 points, which of course there is no national election. So that's meaningless in the sense of like counting votes, but it's a meaningful and it's impactful when you think about trend lines. And the trends are this is a Joe Biden favored race and Joe Biden's even above 50 percent in a lot of those um, a, a lot of those, you know, categories. Right. And a lot of the national races, whether it's Quinnipiac or, you know, some of the national polls that we tend to trust and rely upon, Joe Biden's ahead. So the atmospherics of this race support Joe Biden at the moment. But I keep telling people, and I said this earlier, and I'm going to say it again, and I'm going to say it as much as I can into a microphone. This race will tighten, and it will not necessarily be performative. It will be because more people are paying attention. And as we have become more of a polarized country, that's like, frankly, resembles more of like a gang than like a country, right? You're part of like the red gang or the blue gang. I think we're going to see the race tighten up. Again, not because... Joe Biden made a gaffe or said something silly or anything like that. Not because Trump is killing it. It's just because that's the country. The race is going to tighten and it's going to narrow. And I actually think the polls to watch are the ones in some of those um, battleground states. But it's not just the top line numbers. It's likability of the candidate, which is very important. And it's also four key groups. And I've had a couple of people who are in the public opinion research space signal this to me. There were four groups that Donald Trump won in 2016 and that Mitt Romney won in 2012 that Trump is losing right now. It's seniors, it's college educated voters, it's independents, and it's people in the suburbs. Trump won all four of those groups in 16. Romney won all four in 12, even though Obama won the race. But those are important groups to kind of tell you where the race is going right now. Those groups are all in favor of Joe Biden. And that is very bad news for the president. So we'll watch this race. We'll have much more to say about it. 
But right now, after those two conventions that we just spent some time talking about, nothing's changed. So with that, we'll keep an eye on it and we'll keep you posted on what we hear. It's the Here Comes the Pain podcast. I'm your host, Joel Payne. We're presented by Hip Politics Network. Lots of great content there to check out. We're going to take a short break and then we'll be right back and we'll do a little bit of local politics. We're going to talk about the Joe Kennedy versus Ed Markey race up in Massachusetts. We're going to dig a little bit into that race and I'm going to tell you what it means for the future of the Democratic Party. Again, it's the Here Comes the Pain podcast. And I'm your host, Joel Payne. We'll be right back. And just like that, we are back, my friends. It's the Here Comes the Pain podcast. I'm your host, Joel Payne. We're presented by Hip Politics Network. Lots of great content there. We encourage you to check out. Follow the show on Instagram. That's at Here Comes the Pain Pod on Instagram. That's at Here Comes the Pain P O D. Follow me on Twitter at P A Y N E D C. That's at Pain D C. Want to pick up on where I left off before the break and talk a little bit of local politics, take a break from the national stuff. Obviously, there'll be plenty to talk about with Trump v. Biden over the next couple of weeks, but wanted to take a moment and dive into some really interesting stuff from the Bay State, from Massachusetts, uh, where there was a very, there were a couple actually hotly contested primaries. Uh, Richard Neal, who is the chair of the Ways and Means Committee, survived a challenge from the left. He is a very famously kind of moderate, even conservative Democrat that bothers people on the left flank of the party. Uh, but he survived a pretty, uh, what looked to be a pretty tough primary, but I think he actually won pretty easily. But that was kind of the number two race that people were watching. Um, there was a Senate primary that was uh, you know, going on up in Massachusetts as well. Incumbent Senator Ed Markey, who is a you know, pretty well-known uh, you know, Democrat uh, was in the House for a long time. Um, somebody who has um, really been active in Massachusetts politics for you know decades now. Older gentleman in his seventies. He was being challenged by Joseph Kennedy, who uh, represents a district there in the state. And of course, Joseph Kennedy or Joe Kennedy, um, the third, is. <laughs> of course, a part of the Kennedy family political legacy. And, you know, Joe Kennedy is actually someone who I believe he's been in office for just under a decade, maybe. I think he just finished his fourth term in Congress. Um, don't don't check me on that, but I think I'm right on that. Three or four terms in Congress and decided to take a plunge at challenging Ed Markey. And it's interesting because there's a historical parallel here that I'm going to use. I think the central question, and, and just for those who maybe weren't following the race, um, Markey survived the challenge from Kennedy, um, won by a good number of points. wasn't a wasn't a blowout, but you know, won pretty comfortably in his primary. Um, Kennedy was not able to kind of activate some of the things he thought he'd be able to activate to to defeat Markey. But I want to drill deep on the race a little bit, so. Um, the historic parallel that I was referring to a second ago, there's a very famous moment from 1980 when Joe Kennedy's uncle, Ted, um, ran for president or was was talking about running for president and was challenging Jimmy Carter. And Roger Mudd, who was the kind of famed journalist from that era, sat down, did an interview with Kennedy and asked Ted Kennedy 
you know, a very simple question. I'm actually, so I do media training um, in my kind of non, uh, you know, podcast, non, you know, media pundit life. Um, I, I'm, I'm a, you know, kind of a communications advisor. And so I've done media training and I've used this video a number of times. It's like this beautiful, picturesque view near kind of the Kennedy compound, I think it is. And then Mudd is sitting outside with Ted Kennedy he says, so why do you want to be president? And Ted Kennedy um, fumbled around and kind of came up with a very unsatisfying answer that really just did not demonstrate why, you know, he was taking all this time and all this effort and frankly, all this money and, you know, all of the things that come along, come along with it, why he was running for president. And, you know, by the retelling of a lot of people from that era, that really sunk his chances before the race even begun. There were other complicating factors as well. He would be challenging an incumbent um, in, in Jimmy Carter, et cetera, all those things. But Kennedy never was able to answer that fundamental question, why do you want to be president? And in a lot of ways, we saw something similar in Massachusetts when Joe Kennedy, who's, a, again, very promising young politician, good-looking guy, nice family, um, really kind of, right down the middle of democratic politics kind of kind of a little bit i would compare him almost politically in a way like a kamala harris like can appeal to the left can appeal um to conservative kind of traditional democrats moderate democrats um i would say he is squarely in the middle of the democratic party he's not all the way to the left he's not in the middle like of the country he is right in the middle of the democratic party um where i think probably a lot of democrats actually feel like they are but he could not answer that fundamental question why are you challenging Ed Markey? What do you bring to the table that Ed Markey doesn't? And why is it so urgent to get him up out of here? Like, that's just in basic layman's terms. Like, that's that's kind of what happened there. And there was this long-form story in Politico about what happened in the race. And it's so interesting to hear from people on the ground about, you know, some of their interpretations of what went down. I'm pulling up the political article right now. Um, there is a quote from a Kennedy supporter here who really, I think, I think the, the writer from Politico really tried to use this to capture, you know, what happened in this race. And I'm stalling here as I'm trying to pull it up. But, you know, this is a political consultant, Doug Rubin, who was a Kennedy supporter, who said, and I quote, there was a really strong reason for running. I don't think they were ever able to articulate it. That's the problem. I've always felt like the best campaigns are the ones with the right candidate at the right moment. I actually thought Joe was the right candidate for this moment. And for whatever reason, they were never able to win that argument and frame that frame the race that way. Um, as somebody who gives a lot of quotes to articles, that is like a money quote that any journalist, any political journalist who's like trying to capture a story, they would love that kind of quote because that really gets at the heart of it. Um, Joe Kennedy, and look, he's certainly taken a lot of criticism for, you know, challenging Ed Markey. He was not unique in doing that. I mean, the reason why AOC is in Congress is because she challenged a very kind of well-known, popular, long-term Democratic congressman, uh, Joe Crowley, who was like in line to potentially be the speaker. Um, within, you know, five years, and she beat him. Elliot Engel just lost to Jamal Bowman. Um, you know, we've had these moments, you know, th th this is not a, a new phenomena of, 
you know, uh, you know people who are incumbents getting challenged. Dianne Feinstein survived the challenge from the left in California. But those challenges are best when there is a clear reason why you have to replace the person who you are challenging. It's particularly important for primary challenges because usually that means that you're representing kind of, I guess, maybe like an aggrieved party, a part of the coalition that does not feel heard or does not feel represented. And I think Kennedy certainly felt like um, he was doing that. And I'm sure um, they, they felt like that's what they were pulling together. There's actually, you know, talking to people on the ground and talking to some folks who are there up in Massachusetts politics, they'll tell you that he actually closed pretty well. You know, Kennedy um, was actually able to land the endorsement of Speaker Pelosi, um, which was certainly interesting and kind of caused a stir for other issues. Pelosi typically gets upset with members when they wade into um, primary fights and into races. And, uh, you know, Pelosi herself kind of uh, has gone after AOC and some of the kind of the new breed of Democratic uh, politicians in the House, particularly the squad, right, for going and supporting primary challenges against people who they're serving in the chamber with, right? Pelosi kind of took a hit with, you know, that argument with those folks by wading into this Marky Kennedy primary. That's normally a race you would expect the speaker to like sit on the sidelines of. Now she supported Kennedy. Kennedy has been in her caucus for a number of years. He's been an important part of her caucus, but like she knows Ed Markey. I mean, Ed Markey was in the house for decades, probably served in the house longer with Pelosi than Kennedy has. So interesting that Pelosi decided to, to throw herself into that fight. Um, and I, I'd say probably politically that backfired on her. But a lot of interesting stuff here for political junkies like me. There's just a lot of stuff to feed on. Um, these stories like this political story that I cited um, are going to continue to be written about what happened here. But at the end of the day, I think Joe Kennedy was not able to he was not able to lay out why is it urgent for me to replace Ed Markey like he was never able to make the case like Ed Markey is like defective flawed in a fundamental way and can't do the job in the Senate Um, and some people may think it's actually a miscalculation I mean listen Elizabeth Warren who is the other senator from uh, Massachusetts obviously was running for president there was a very real possibility she could have run a Democratic nomination that would have created a vacancy there Um, there's a real chance that if Joe Biden is successful in his bid for the White House this fall and he's the president, Elizabeth Warren could be a part of a Biden administration in some way and that seat could open up. There's also some Democrats who think, hey, Joe Kennedy, how about you just challenge Charlie Baker, who is a popular, moderate Republican governor up in Massachusetts, um, who is like not a Trumper at all. Like he's a part of like a completely different Republican Party. But You know, some Democrats ask that question. So some people have challenged kind of the Kennedy, um, you know, approach on strategy. And I think others have questioned it on just the why are you doing it? Like, what's the what's the point of this? Why is this so important? Um, So I think that's some interesting stuff to kind of, you know, just chew on there. And I would encourage folks to read up on this and um, just to kind of learn more about that race and uh, why we landed where we landed. But the last part I want to address here with with the race is just kind of what it portends for the party overall. You know, I talked about some of those other um, instances where we've seen 
challenges, particularly from the left. That's usually where you get them. Um, or, you know, for Republicans, they kind of get them from the right. Um, but, you know, Joe Kennedy and, and Markey is really in a lot of ways, it's a proxy war for like a lot of Democratic fights that we have seen and will continue to see. It's AOC Crowley. It's Bowman Engel. Um, frankly, it's, you know, Tim Ryan Pelosi. I mean, it's it's all of these fights, these inter-party fights that we're seeing. And by the way, I think if Joe Biden wins, we'll see a lot more of. Um, I think that this Kennedy Markey kind of fight and like all of the reverberations that I just described and I just talked about is probably a preview of what you might see if in, in, in a hopeful theory for me as a Democrat where Joe Biden wins the presidency and maybe you even see a Democratic Senate and a Democratic House, there is going to be an all out fight. OK, within the Democratic Party for like the direction of the party. I think the reason why Joe Biden, taking it back national for a second, has gotten so much cooperation from Democrats who are more progressive, the Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren wing of the party, is because he was able to successfully convince them we have to defeat Trump and we have to get Trump up out of here. After I get Donald Trump up out of here, all bets are off. You want to go and fight me on health care? You want to go and kind of go and pick off Democrats like have at it? Um, you know, as progressives, you want to go pick off mainstream Democrats like have at it. Do what you do. And I do think that that's so interesting because I kind of call on my professional experience. Um, I've talked a little bit about this, but previously, about a decade ago, I worked for Majority Leader Harry Reid, who is, of course, retired now. Um and uh, really one of the most significant figures in, you know, Democratic uh, congressional history. But Harry Reid was the majority leader for, gosh, I think it was just under a decade, maybe eight years in total. Um, I was there from 2009 to 2011 um, when this coincided with the first two years of Barack Obama's presidency. Now, if you remember at that time, there was uh, a Democratic House. Nancy Pelosi was a speaker. Of course, there was a Democratic Senate. Uh, Reid was the majority leader. There was a 60-vote threshold in the Senate that Democrats held for the first year-plus of that term. Um, that changed because Ted Kennedy um, became gravely ill and eventually passed away. And ended up that seat ended up going to Scott Brown, a Republican, um, in the middle of that two-year span. So it went from 60 to 59 votes. But you had a super majority of Democrats in, this, in the Senate, and you had a majority in the House, and of course you had the White House. And that was one of the most contentious times I can remember um, as a Democrat. Now, things happened that were historic, like the passage of Obamacare. You had the passage of Dodd-Frank Wall Street reform. You had the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell. Um, you had the passage of the DREAM Act, or the, you know, kind of a, a version of that passed um, through some kind of legislative maneuvering. But, you know, all these things that happen, but there was so much of a fight. And I think the perfect example of what I'm talking about here is what happened during Obamacare. You know, the, the Obamacare legislative battle back and forth, um, you know, uh, stewardship through Congress, so to speak. There were so many Democrats who wanted you know, a public option. They wanted an all-out fight. And you know what prevented that from happening? It was other Democrats. Because remember, Democrats had all the votes they wanted 
to do whatever the hell they wanted to do. So if Harry Reid and Nancy Pelosi wanted to or, or were able to, they could have gotten a public option passed through Congress. They could have done it on a strict party line vote. You know what the problem was? It was Joe Lieberman, who was the former, of course, Democratic senator from Connecticut, who most people in the Democratic Party despise now because came very conservative and very kind of middle of the road later in his term. It was um, Ben Nelson, not Bill Nelson from Florida, but Ben Nelson, who was a former Democratic senator from Nebraska. It was Blanche Lincoln, former Democratic senator from Arkansas. It was uh, Kent Conrad, former Democratic senator from North Dakota. Right. You had all of these conservative Democrats that were steering the party away from the far extremes of the party. And it was a real fight. And I can tell you someone in government um, at that time, it was really intense battles about kind of where the party was going to go next. Um, and I think a lot of people were frustrated with um, how Obamacare actually played out. Um, I think people thought that the president and President Obama at that time and his team accepted half a loaf way too early or way too easily that they didn't push the envelope for something uh, more transformative and more extreme um, to change the system. And I think, frankly, that's why a lot of folks, and I might be one of them, think that the Obamacare rollout went so poorly and why the actual bill had so many, um, you know, what I would call kind of less than perfect uh, conceptions and conclusions that were reached within that bill, right? Like I, I think you started off with like a pretty good bill, like the initial Affordable Care Act that like started in committee. I think that ended up being a very different piece of legislation. And again, it all kind of goes back to this intra-party fight, right? It has nothing to do with Republicans. There's going to be a fight in the Democratic Party if Joe Biden wins. You, if you haven't heard it before, you're going to hear it here first. And I think that Kennedy Markey race that I talked about and the AOC Crowley race that I, uh, I talked about, like you just wait. Um, I think that's why you were able to get a very disciplined Democratic convention um, where you didn't have progressives going out on a limb and talking about how they didn't want to be a part of Joe Biden's coalition. Everybody knows they have to be Donald Trump. Donald Trump is the um, existential crisis to be survived. Right. He is the catalyst point. If you get past November 3rd and Donald Trump is no longer the president and Joe Biden is the president and president elect at that time, there will be a war within the Democratic Party. Mark my words. It's the Here Comes the Pain podcast. I'm your host, Joel Payne. We're presented by Hip Politics Network. Lots of great content there would encourage you to check out. Really appreciate you joining this week. And again, thank you for your patience as taking some time to handle some other business, do some other responsibilities and get back into the podcast swing of things. We'll be back here with regular episodes throughout September. You'll be hearing from me throughout October and November. Um, there will probably be some times where uh, my schedule might force me to take a week off here and there, but I'll be sure to communicate that and always appreciate the feedback about the show. Appreciate the amazing support really has exceeded my expectations and so grateful for all the old friends and new friends and uh, new voices that I'm hearing from um, on my social media feeds and from uh, direct messages. Um, it's just been fantastic and uh, appreciate all the great support. So again, it's the Here Comes the Pain podcast. I'm your host, Joel Payne. It's been fun this week. Thanks so much for joining and we'll talk to you soon. Be well and God bless. <laughs>